You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole. Um, You may not remember this episode by the time you hear it and listen to it. You may think, have I listened to this episode before? I should probably listen to that episode because we're going to be talking about Men in Black International, which means you just may not remember that you've heard it. So you may listen to it over and over and over again, unfortunately creating some sort of like weird Groundhog Day effect, but at least this will be a fantastic episode for you to listen to. We're calling it right now, and I'm really excited because, uh, Christy, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I think so, and I think what you're trying to say is what you think you saw you did not see. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. That is exactly what I was trying to say. This is why we're partners, (laughs) and we've added a third partner in Cried here, Pawnee, I mean, Scott from Suicide Squadcast is back. I, I wish you had told me like before I swore because now like I can't, there's no take backsies. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I can't take that back. You should have said that before I swore it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, this is, I, I mean, it really is. It's going to be a lot of fun uh, as we dive into the Men in Black world. We haven't covered any of the Men in Black films, which after watching this film, Chrissy, I think we should at least go back and cover the first one. Sometime. Yeah, we should. Because uh, that would be, yeah, that would be a blast. Um, and, you know, then you guys can do your rap, you know. So, um, <laughs> like you were before we started recording, which it was it was really entertaining. I, I just hate that, that there's no, like, actual audio evidence of that happening because Christy and I were, we were, we were oh, yeah. dropping the beat. Seriously. It's true. It's true. And I had not hit the backup recordings yet, so nobody will get to hear that. I'm sorry, <laughs> folks. I apologize that I, I those were not running yet. Otherwise, that would have been at the end of the episode as a stinger. But um, we're we are glad that you're here to listen to us dive into Men in Black International. Um, quick reminder: you know you can find us all over the place. You can find the Six Hundred Two Club wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, of course, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Uh, it's a great place to help out the show by giving us a star rating in review. Uh, by helping other people find the show, by letting them know what you think of us. Um, And then, uh, if you're not an Apple user, guess what? We've got you covered. You can find um, the 602 Club wherever you get your podcasts because uh, we're on every single platform out there pretty much, I think. So um, we're all there for you. You can also find us Twitter, TrekFM, Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. Of course, we've got our listeners-only discussion group. If you want to talk to everybody who's listening to Track FM about all the shows that we're talking about, that is over on Facebook. It's called the Babel Conference. Now, if you're on Facebook, you just type Babel into the search field, and you'll find the group. And then if you're on our website at track.fm, any of our show pages, there's a button that says Discussion. If you press that, that will help you find the show as well. And then last but not least... Christy and I love getting emails from uh, listeners, so uh, send us your thoughts about anything that we talk about, or maybe you've got suggestions for things you'd like to hear us talk about. Um, that is at trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show. Choose this show, The 602 Club. 
and send us an email. Let us know what you think about anything that we've had to say on the 602 Club. So that is if you remember what we said and there wasn't some sort of like flashy thing at the end. So uh, maybe wear your sunglasses, you know, um, and then look at your, you know, whatever it is you listen to. Everybody listens on different things now, like a phone or does anybody have iPods anymore? I, I, I wouldn't know. I think I, I'm still shocked sometimes when I see that those things are still available to be bought. Right. Like, it's an iPad anymore. Because or... I actually got my iPhone to replace my iPod. Yeah, I think that's an 50%. iPad. Yeah, there you go. iPad. There you mm-hmm. go. So, um, well, th- I kind of want to start. I wanted to start there with you guys with kind of like a flashy thingy, like going back in time and talking about the history of the series. And and obviously it's been a while since we've had a Men uh, Men in Black film. And so for you guys, was this a series that you were fans of? Like, this is something that um, you were really excited about to have coming back. You know, what is your history with the Men in Black series? For me, it's a long history. I actually, I'm going to give my age away and tell you I was 10 when the first one came out in 97 Um, but the reason that matters is that I went to see it in the theater with my dad um, and ever since it's been something that the two of us bonded over and always have our inside jokes about Um, we had that song that Will Smith did for the original movie on repeat all the time my dad and I singing that in the car and so you know it's just something that we love and I think that the first one for sure was this magic of having Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones on screen together. Uh, they made the perfect team. And so I think it just built from there. Um, and I've seen every single one as soon as they came out in theaters. And uh, I love the neuralizer or flashy thingy, uh, as well as, like I said, the noisy cricket. Um, but I felt like the second film was kind of forgettable. One was always my favorite. And then I was excited to see them trying to reboot it now with uh, Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson. So I was hopeful for it when it came out. But I'll let you see what we thought toward the end. Did you did you even see three at all? I did. And did you have any like was there any thoughts that you had on that that did you like it? Was it I mean, was it just okay for you? Yeah. uh, So for me, I would put one in first place, three in second place and then two in third place until I saw this one. Nice. What about you, Scott? Christy made me feel kind of warm and fuzzy because that sounds very similar to my experience because I was 15. Aww. Uh, Yeah, I, I was 15 when the first one came out and I also saw it with my dad. I still remember the theater. I actually live like five minutes from the theater now that my dad and I originally saw it in. And it was always special to me because my dad was always kind of a, I, I, he always came across like a kind of a serious guy. I did not realize my father could laugh so much as I remember him <laughs> laughing during that first movie. I, I remember looking at my dad going, who are you? And what did you do with my father? I, like, I didn't realize he, he found things funny like this ever and I, i've told the story as other places that the two things that made my dad laugh the hardest was it was all tommy lee jones it was him interrogating the pug and like shaking the pug outside of the newsstand <laughs> he lost it and the other one was everything in the tunnel with him putting in the eight track mm. and listening to elvis in the car mm-hmm. and will smith doing the whole you know elvis is dead right no he isn't he just went home and my dad just that was the moment, that entire scene with the car in the tunnel. I just, I was like, who are you? I've never heard my dad laugh like this before. And so I had kind of the same experience. 
the first one was the only one I saw in theaters. Two and three were ones that I eventually saw at home through rental. I agree with you, Christy. Second one was forgettable. Third one I really enjoyed. So uh, my rankings of the original trilogy are identical to yours. <laughs> that's so that's so interesting to me. You know, I th- I was 18 when the first one came out. Um, and, you know, it, this is like, it's the height of Will Smith's popularity in the sense of, you know, he's a music star. Um, Independence Day, this, I mean, at this point, Will Smith could legitimately do no wrong. Um, you know, this is before Wild Wild West. Um, and so, you know, this, um, this movie, the, the first one really just hit, I think, all the right notes. You know, it felt original. It was very funny. Um, it had, it created a really unique, funny, enjoyable world to be in. Um, you know, there's just so much about it to love. Um, I have not seen, I I was trying to think back of when I've seen the second one. I know I saw it in the theater and I remember being very disappointed in it. And, um, it kind of soured my taste buds to men in black in the sense of wanting to see another one in the theater. And I did not even, I've never even seen the third one I realized. So that's, that's kind of, you know, that's the, that is the problem of of having a really bad second movie. It can ruin your your desire to ever see any more. It's a little bit. It's like, also a huge time gap between the second and third mm-hmm. one, anyway. Yeah. So that yeah, really. Well, and you, you mentioned that Scott. It just it reminded me too of, of many of the uh, the same way um, that I felt about um, you know after seeing the second Men in Black is kind of how I felt after the fourth. Pirates of the Caribbean movie like I was like no I'm kind of done with this I don't I don't you're not going to fool me into seeing it in the theater for sure you know maybe I'll rent it one day or something but you know I'm not I'm not going to go spend money on this you know uh and so mm-hmm. you know it, to me after all of this time you know I was with, I'm with you Christy like the thought of them kind of coming back and and rebooting the series in the sense of you know, it's connected to everything that happened, but they're going to give us new characters to, to hopefully fall in love with like we did before and um, kind of branch out by going international. To me, that that was like, OK, that's the way to, to do this. You know, like that sounds like a good way to kind of bring us back into the, the men in black world. And, and you know, honestly, the trailers made it look funny because Chris Hemsworth has a, a very good sense of humor. And everybody it was involved with this. I mean, we've got Lim Neeson and we've got um, Emma Thompson in a movie together. Like, that's great stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've really enjoyed Tessa Thompson and things. So, yeah, I mean, m- looking forward, I was really excited about this. And Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson together in the Avengers movies. Um, and in Thor Ragnarok, yep. when we first saw them together, it was like, yes, they make great chemistry on screen together. They're so funny. Uh, so seeing them in this together excited me about it as well. But I, I was a little sad seeing Rip Torn was gone. I don't know about you guys. Oh, yeah. I love I love me some Rip Torn. Yeah. It was <laughs> I th- that, you know, that first cast. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I went into this with. um very tempered expectations. This was more like an obligatory watch for me. Like I remember growing up liking the men in black movies. I didn't go in with terrible high hopes. 
because don't shoot me, but I didn't like Thor Ragnarok. So it was, so I was kind of hoping, I was waiting for this movie to kind of redeem those two on screen for me. (laughs) Like, how is it when you get these two and it's not in that movie? And then we'll talk about how how we did turn out. Well, and see, Scott, I'm I'm there with you in the sense that um, I didn't like Thor Ragnarok either. Uh, It's not a movie I enjoyed, um, you know, because it was too, there were too many jokes, you know, like it was just too much of a joke. Um, Whereas I felt like, you know, coming into this, okay, this is a place where, you know, he'll be able to shine because this is a movie that is, that is kind of made for that, you know, I mean, these are much uh, less serious films. So, well, for my mind, it's like Men in Black as a franchise. It's a comedy first. Yes. It's a sci-fi yep. movie second. 100%. Yep. Mm-hmm. 100% agree with you. Now, I will say I was very excited about this, but then this summer, I think my expectations began to be tempered by the time I actually got to go see this. Um, because a lot of the sequels that have been coming out this summer have not been really living up to the potential that they have, I think. And so that definitely tempered my expectations. And then, you know, honestly, I, I mean, I, I saw the reviews, you know, uh, I just happened to see the number. I didn't read, you know, uh, what they said. Cause I don't, I don't read what reviews say until I actually see the movie and then I'll read the reviews. Um, I, I don't like anybody else kind of clouding my, my quote unquote judgment on a film until I, I see it and can make up my own mind, but it's hard to avoid the number, you know, cause that gets thrown around on Twitter. And I was like, Oh man, another movie that's just not, it's not hitting the mark with the critics. That's frustrating. And so I definitely went, I think went into the movie, um, with absolutely by the time I got to the theater, I had zero expectations. Um, and no, some... see, I didn't even. I was able to completely avoid the number utterly. I mean, I I pulled out my. It's called a CD, ladies and gentlemen. I pulled out my CD of the of the Men in Black album. I was playing that sucker in the car, yes. and then when I walked up, I got these sweet shades that I'm wearing because they were the AMC giveaway. And I was like, you know what? I, I don't have a lot of expectations, but I wanted to go in like with as much enthusiasm I could. Like, I'm going to give this movie a chance. I was ready. I was like, let's do this. And, and a lot of times I find, you know, that I will like a show uh, or a movie more. It could be a show, or, uh, you know, on TV or a movie. If I have no expectations going in, that really makes a difference a lot of times. Like if, if I'm thinking that, oh, this probably won't be good. A lot of times that helps because I just, I am, I am unencumbered then by anything other than, okay, let me see what you got, you know? Um, and I, I, I have to say, Right up front, I do feel like the beginning of the movie, it really felt like we were going to go somewhere very interesting, which was from the dialogue, it seemed like um, the theme of the movie was kind of going to be men in black becoming more an organization that makes deals with the devil and or, you know, uh, aliens that they normally would either be fighting or, um, you know, not putting up with. Uh, to protect the innocent, but are now just making deals with them in the name of protection. Um, and I just thought that that was going to be 
we're going to go in a, in a much kind of like deeper place. And then they kind of really dropped that story and gave us a much more basic story about, you know, somebody's been replaced by the bad guys and we there's a it, mole on yes. the inside. So <laughs> we haven't heard no, that before. Um, and, you know, so I think that was really interesting to me because I felt like the the start of the movie, I was really engaged in that because I felt like I, I, I see what you're doing here. I think it's really smart. You're going to do something really interesting with um, the Men in Black series that we kind of haven't done before. And then they just don't continue with that one theme. And I don't know if that's the writing, like the writers or whatever, um, you know, switched gears or something or, or what, but I was, I was, I was a little disappointed that they, that by the end it just became, you know, the enemy was on the inside the whole time because they had replaced somebody. And, and yes, it was, that's, that's definitely not an original oh, story. Oh, I can kind of fill in the gap for, I know, I know what happened because there was a Hollywood Reporter article about it today. Hmm. Yeah, this is another one of those stories of the director and the producer, you know, it did not agree whatsoever on their vision. Apparently Sony as a studio just basically kind of pulled a Ken Watanabe was like, let them fight. And even like Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth had dialogue writers coming in and like punching up the dialogue. Like it was just a hot, it was, it was a hot mess. So when you mentioned the idea that something started off and dropped it, yeah, apparently this movie was supposed to be very topical about the idea of immigration like that was the original vision for the film. And then through a director's cut, a producer's cut, too many cooks in the kitchen with re, I mean, tons apparently rewrites. Uh, that is why it seemed to have lost the direction throughout it because there were just way too many people with their own opinions about this movie. Which stinks because I do think that that initial direction would have been great. You know, I like that joke about, was it Jimmy was the name of the alien that's there when he's not supposed to be? Oh, this is Earth. <laughs> but that that was adorable. Well, that was kind of always the fun of like the the magic of the original films was the uh, like like the the guy, the alien with the pregnant wife in the first movie, you know, and right. kind of pulling him over and being like, where's your visa? You know, and, and right. It's always been there. Yeah, and they could yep. have just kept going with that and had a really strong story. You know, I think, too, that makes so much more sense for why the other storyline with the um, with the, the chess characters, you know, that, that Pawnee is, is a character of, um, and a part of this race that apparently looks like chess pieces, which is funny. Um, but where that storyline, like how it connects doesn't really seem to connect all that well with the rest of it. So that really makes sense that we we get this kind of like, you know, Scott, you and I can uh, Justice League-ish, um, you know, kind of thing that happens where, you know, you, you really do have um, a bunch of different ideas and, 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 and we'll put it this way. Look, you can go back, you can listen to my Justice League review, I don't hate Justice League, but it's not the movie we could have gotten, and it's not the best movie that it could be. It's a fine movie. It's not a great movie, and I and I I guess I'll just spoil it here. 
you know, this is another one of those movies like that where it's like, it's fine. It's not awful. It's, it, it, you know, when it comes to the Men in Black franchise, it, it could be like number two or three in the list. So, you know, that's not bad. Um, but there was, there was a direction that they were going here that I feel like if they had just taken that risk, it would have been a, a much better risk to take because they play it safe with the storyline and, 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 I don't necessarily think um, it does the movie any favors because it's not going to stand out with um, critics for sure. But it's definitely, I don't think, going to completely stand out with the audience either. Um, You know, I think they're going to... It's basically like insert your Dark Phoenix review from last week here. In some ways, yes. And, 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 I, you know, this is one of those places too where... It's interesting to see the audience reaction, you know, uh, the, the the critics rating is 24%. The audience rating is 66, you know, so their people are giving it like a three, 3.5, right? So, but it was still rated lower than MIB2, uh, right? You know, I don't know. I'd have to go look that up, but you know, it's, it, it is, I think on Rotten Tomatoes, it that this was rated the lowest of all four, which surprised me because critics wise. Yes. Which I don't think anybody in their right mind, if I remember two at all could say that this was worse than two. I would agree. Yeah. I I agree with you. So I don't know what critics (laughs) are smoking. Um, but yeah, this is definitely not worse than two, but you know, I think the storyline, when you kind of look at it, 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 it does something that is very tried and true. And, you know, that's not always a bad way to um, reassert yourself as a franchise. But I think you could tell they had something else in mind here that gets kind of shoved under, you know, the galactic rug. Um, and it it just doesn't quite give us what it could have been. And that, if you can see that as an audience member, it does kind of leave you feeling like, oh, that was good, but man, I really wish they had gone that other direction. So, Well, I think it kind of goes back to the discussion you had last week with Dark Phoenix about, I thankfully didn't know about all of, like, I went to Dark Phoenix with all the drama. Like, I knew the whole story. Like, I was listening to your review going, oh, uh-huh. I could fill in a few details here about what happened kind of deal. Luckily, this thing, I went in ignorance. So I was actually able to enjoy it a little bit more. And I'm kind of grateful that Hollywood Reporter decided to drop the article like a week, you know, like after opening weekend instead of beforehand. So I wouldn't have read it. I didn't go into the movie with this in my head. I just went into the movie theater, saw the movie, and then read the article and went, oh, that makes sense. Well, and and I think, you know, something we talked about last week um, was that whole idea of that movies get poisoned before they even come out because we know too much about how the sausage is being made and how that can have a real impact. Um, again, again, I guess I'm kind of spoiling it, but... I don't think this like I don't want anybody to hear this. I don't think this is a bad movie. I my wife and I had a, a very enjoyable time on a Sunday afternoon at the movie theater. We laughed. It was silly. There's nothing wrong with that. But it was disappointing yeah. because I think we we're all saying we could see where it was like going to go and it was going to be a little bit deeper. And that would have been nice. And I mean, maybe too that whole scene with um 
Chris Hemsworth and Tessa in the bar with the alien that they were trying to talk to. Maybe they didn't like also the direction that that seemed to go where she was like, you're not pimping me out to the alien, are you? You know, and they're trying to circumvent issues with that. Um, in addition, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like there's a few, I don't know, there's a few places in this movie where they they could definitely be trying to make a, a change, you know. Um, and mm-hmm. I think... There's there's something to be said, you know, I, I will say that one of the things I felt like they did do a good job in was I really liked the theme that we got with H and the idea of, you know, once you removed his history from him, you know, like there, there was a sense where you, you had removed, once you had removed that memory of what had actually happened, you had changed who he was. You know, and how important our experience is and important our history is to who we are. And I thought that was kind of a, and I, it was something that just came to me today as as I was thinking about the movie, that there is a really nice, powerful theme about how um, the experience of what it means to live in a lie, what it means to live in the truth. And H is living in a lie and it changes everything that he is from that moment on. And the moment the truth reasserts itself in his life, he becomes more of who he used to be, which that's a really cool, I think a really well done um, theme. And I, I wish they had maybe even punched that up a little bit more, but it's definitely there, I think. Well, I think the point you just made it, but I actually, for my network, we kind of did a, a review of this. And that was one of my biggest complaints about the movie was I needed that punched up more because yeah. I was sitting here going, Okay, you eliminate one night from his life and suddenly he like everyone talks about how he's a different person and it just didn't like that didn't connect with me. The way you just put it sounds wonderful if if I'd felt that was what they were trying to say or if they had just been able to say that with a little bit more gusto than what we got in the movie because as it appeared in the movie it was just Let's wa- let's let Chris Hemsworth be a a bumbling idiot for a lot of the movie, and then try to explain it away by he got neuralized once, and suddenly that changed who he was. and And I just found that really hard to to buy by that point in the movie when when that finally shows up. Yeah, I'm on the sp- same page with both of you as far as H his development goes. Um, I still think he was the most developed character of all of them. Um, but I, I think too, it disappointed me that high T then doesn't get much to his story. You know, you find out that he was the mole and that there was like an alien that had taken over his body, but then that's kind of where it ends and you don't really know what species they are. If that's what the hive was, what their goal is other than, you know, total domination. It just kind of feels like it fell flat. And you've got Liam freaking Neeson. And I'm just like, rouse him. Yeah. No, I agree with you, both of you. And I, I think you're right, Scott, in that, that you're calling out the fact that it's just this. Again, it's like, there's the theme there, but we don't do enough throughout the rest of the storyline to truly make it anything other than just a, plot point 
for the audience to say there's something not right here so that when you think back through the movie you're like oh yeah so that's why everybody was saying he was different but it should be more than that because i i do think that when you when you if you were really to have played that out well uh, you you could had have had this really deep discussion, um, you know, and and thought process about, you know, lies and truth and and the importance of our experience and who, how that makes us who we are. You know, I was just you know thirtieth anniversary of, of Star Trek Five was this year. You know, and and Kirk's famous line in that movie is "I need my pain." You know, like because our pain. The experiences we've had through that pain is what makes us who we are, what we learn from those experiences. And so you could you could really have had all of that of this importance of history um, and experience. But like you said, it it's just kind of used as a, a more like a cheap plot point than really getting into the depths that you could have. And it would have helped just like you mentioned, just the character in general. Um, I think, you know. Speaking of Chris Hemsworth himself, he's great in this movie, I think. You know, I think he he brings all of the charisma and charm needed to to bring you along the journey with this movie and and help you have a good time in it. And every time he's on screen, he is just electric. Like he, you know, and it's not just because of his abs. Um or his shirt being yes, unbuttoned. Yes, I mean, scene. keep un- unbuttoning, um, Chris. But um so uh, you know but that he he there's only a few moments where he really gets a a moment to kind of go a little bit deeper and we know he can do that because we've seen it him him playing thor i think specifically of his storyline and and endgame i thought was really well done so i wish that they had just allowed the the depth of the movie to be deeper so that that meant you could get more depth with with Chris Hemsworth's character because he can do drama and comedy and he can combine them together. I wish you'd given him more because he deserves more. He he really he can pull off both so well. My thing is that that would have justified in my mind the prologue scene with T and H because my problem is as an audience member nothing is more annoying to me than giving me information that then basically says oh so this is how the rest of the movie is going to play out because thanks to that 5 minutes at the beginning of the movie i knew t was the mole that was obvious to me i knew that the reason he was acting different was cuz whatever happened that night and i assumed he got new- i assumed he got neuralized because i know how an mib movie works and so there was a part of me that was like why are you treating me like I'm stupid that I'm not going to know why this first five minutes is in the movie? Oh, and you think I don't know, or did you put it there and it needed to be more of a, no, there's a reason for this. And that was something that if they had tried to play up this theme a little bit more, maybe they could have, in my personal opinion, justified that scene at the beginning instead of basically just telegraphing the rest of the plot for me and then trying to play a twist at the end that I saw coming from the first five minutes. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, did anyone else feel that way or was I the only one looking at the first five minutes going, oh, I know. Oh, I, I know what this is now. See, I thought it was Agent C. Okay. Which they were trying to lead you that way. Uh, you know, for me, I, I was able to figure out the plot of the movie relatively quickly 
And so it wasn't that it was a surprise, you know, at the end. And I think the problem with any screenwriting, um, and this is just my opinion, I'm not a screenwriter. I've never written a script in my life. So, you know, you can take this with a grain of salt if you want. But anytime that you do flashback scenes, you have to be very careful for how you do those flashback scenes because the moment you do that, it is te- it's it's made to tell your audience something, right? So it almost feels like it would have been a better job to have you come into the movie without giving us that scene um, and just have everybody reference it and then have these weird moments with Chris Hemworth's character where it is almost like he's remembering it being different, but he can't quite get there you know so that there is that like you know like is there something wrong is there something wrong is there just something wrong with him or is he truly like remembering something like then you could make you could give it so much more again some depth but i think that Mm -hmm. you're right scott in many ways you just kind of show your hand up front because you do this prologue scene And, and and what's frustrating is like look prologues work if you're doing like the Lord of the Rings and you're trying to set up an entire universe, basically, you don't prologues are very dangerous screenwriting ideas, you know, um, you know, prologues, I think work, you know, Scott, I think you'd agree like in, uh, um, Batman V Superman where the prologue is Batman's origin story. Um, you know, and you're using that to build into where you're going to go with this Batman character, you know. Um, so those kind of things, like, it just, it, you have to be super careful with how you use a prologue. Um, and if you're going to do it, I feel like you maybe need to, you, you have to do it differently than you did here. Or you need to find another way to insert that information into the film. Um, and maybe just, I don't know, somewhat more cleverly. Well, I think part of the problem also is that when you've created M, Tessa Thompson's character, to be your audience proxy, very similar to the way that Jay was the proxy in the original film, if the, if the character is meant to be our our entry into this, you know, this stage in the franchise, then why don't you start with her? I guess is, you know, it it kind of goes back to the structure thing you're talking about. If you want us, if you want us to follow her story, then we need to understand that it's her story at the beginning instead of the prologue being tacked on when, when this is the fourth entry in the franchise, we don't need, you know, the, the, I love, I loved you bringing up the, the prologue we get at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, where it's like, yeah, this is like telling you how the world works. We already know how this world works. It's the fourth movie in a franchise. Well, and I mean, it too, you know, it ends up making it more like it's H's story instead of Molly's story. And it, it really, it hurts it because it feels like they wanted to introduce it with the prologue that they did just for the humor aspect, I guess. Of, you know, you remember it's two guys, one's older and one's younger, and they're teaming up together. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, I like your thought, Scott, because, you know, I think Tessa Thompson's character, M, <clears throat> Molly, um, just, I enjoy her character in the movie, but I don't feel like she is given a ton to do depth wise she just kind of is there 
And it's not really her fault. It's just that the way this script is playing out with her character. Um, and I I enjoy her and Chris Hemsworth together. Um, I enjoy the movie with her. But I feel like that that um, she's never really truly given the opportunity to, again, just like Chris, to go deep anywhere. This isn't a challenging role for her at all. And um, I don't know. I just I guess I, I with her being like you were mentioning, like when I think of Will Smith's character in the first movie, you know, that movie is a Will Smith movie with Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. This feels like it should be a Tessa Thompson movie with Chris Hemsworth, but it's not and it very quickly becomes a Chris Hemsworth movie. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, and because narratively you've made her supposedly your focal point, it, 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 it pulls apart the, 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 the seams of the, the narrative because we're not truly, um, focusing on, on her and her character, uh, especially since again, she's the new B and Chris Hemsworth is the one who's been there the whole time. So the first movie found that balance, right? You found the perfect balance of, of how to, to make Tommy Lee Jones feel like a star next to Will Smith while having it be a Will Smith joint. This needed to find that right balance, and they just don't necessarily do that. And it's, just a, it's frustrating, too, because it would have been nice to, to see Tessa Thompson be able to really... Um, be able to really put her all into this um, and and again I don't blame her I do think that it just feels like no. the script doesn't really do her a ton of of favors yeah I, I don't think it has anything to do with her performance at all I think it was purely that she was not given a lot as far as the character development and the the dialogue um I wish that they had given her story a little bit more time on screen because at least with Jay in the first movie, you know that it's like he's kind of hit rock bottom and Kay brings him in to change his life and make things better. And with her, it feels like there's a lot of buildup, but then they don't really have a direction that they're wanting her to go with it. Um, you know, they, they say she met this alien when she was a kid, her parents got neuralized and she didn't. And then what? And it was like, oh, well, she just always was fascinated with aliens. And that was it. And, and, and she was driven for some undisclosed reason besides seeing the two men in black neurologs, her parents to join MIB. Like she doesn't know who they are. But yet we, because we suddenly jumped from her being a little kid to Tessa Thompson. And she's applying to all these different government organizations, thinking which one of these is going to get me into MIB. And that, you know, and then, of course, she's just magically super smart, which I will at least admit they they set up subtly by having her as a child reading A Brief History of Time. That was a nice touch. But other than Mm -hmm. that, it was boom, she's great at everything. Hire me. And it kind of you would think that after seeing that as a kid that you wouldn't want to join the guys that neuralized your parents. That's uh, that is an excellent point, Christy, because I'm not sure how you would want that, honestly. Um, And I think I think you guys may have just stumbled on something of how to fix it. I think you needed to follow her story. This needed to be her story. and, And we needed to spend like 10 minutes of the movie following her. Um. Whereas I feel like maybe we spend at most possibly three minutes 
um, following her story, and it's very quick. And I, it, it would have been great to be on her journey with her as she gets to that point of wanting to, you know, um, be this person and what she has to go through to be this person and actually be a part of her experience of, you know, being called crazy and all of those things many, many times. Again, those are the ways on screen you have to show, not tell. And this movie shortcuts a lot of those ways to really make us feel for the character. Um, and it's not that it's awful. It's just it's it's there isn't the depth there that we want there to be. So I, I almost feel like the first time we meet H should have been the first time when she met H. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, agreed. And, like it was in the trailer then, where he's asleep, you know, and. Exactly. And then you we can learn about his bumbliness and his recklessness instead of us getting that entire action scene with him when, as Christy pointed out, we should have been devoting that time to getting to know him because she just got to London. Yeah. Yeah. What did you guys think of Pawnee? My for me, the humor in this movie largely did not work for me. Pawnee got all my laughs. Like, if I was laughing in this movie, it was Pawnee. And then I later found mm. out who his voice was, and I was like, oh, the guy from The Big Sick? Okay, this explains why I found Pawnee hilarious. Yeah, it, I loved Pawnee because I felt like at all the moments when the audience would be thinking those things that he said, Pawnee says them. You know, uh, the whole back and forth of changing uh, M's words was hilarious. Oh, you mean oh, yeah, the scene in the desert when they're working on trying to get the bike working again? Yeah. yeah. And he says, my queen says, thank you. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's such a thing I would do. It's so funny because I, I, I like the character because I like that him as an actor. Like the big sick is fantastic and he is very funny. And uh, he's actually in the trailer for, um, you know, the Stuber movie coming out with... Um, uh, what's his face? Uh, Dave Batista. Yeah, but yeah, and which lo- actually looks kind of funny. So, I like mm-hmm. him, and I liked the character for the most part. But I did feel like there were points at which, um, if you had removed him, you would have been able to have more depth in some scenes. So the scene in the desert is funny, but those characters are finding a way to come together in that scene and. If they had just been alone and had to work through that, I think it would have been a better scene without Pawnee making all the jokes the whole time. Because instead of focusing on those two characters finding a way to overcome some of their differences, we're actually more focused on the funny alien character, which he is funny. But I just feel like he kind of takes things away. And really, in the end, his only true amazing use in the movie is at the very, very end. Like, he does some other things in the movie. Um, but really, he's he's a pawn that is needed. Uh, he is, he's a literary pawn that's needed because you, you have to have him there for him to be there at the very end to, to help save her and save the world and all that stuff. So, um, his, his name is very apropos. Uh, but... I just felt like sometimes movies feel like they have to have all of these things like the funny sidekicks and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I wish, again, it, it felt like 
the writing needed to be a little bit better to utilize him in a way that that truly enhanced every single scene that he's in without taking away from what the scene could have been if he hadn't been there. So that's just, you know, it's just something that I noticed in the movie. Again, he is very funny in a lot of the movie, though. I mean, there's there's some there's some really great stuff that he does. But yeah, I, I agree. I definitely didn't like the scene of him rescuing him because it just felt thrown in last minute. Like, well, we need some way for her to get out of this black hole. So we're going to use him. Um, but otherwise, I really enjoyed the humor that he brought. And to me, I feel like he was kind of essential to like diffusing the motorcycle scene because I felt like Pawnee's dialogue when he says, what is this, a scene from the notebook? I mean, I've never seen it, but (laughs) it did feel like they were just going to lead to the two of them sleeping together. And it's like, but I don't want them to do that. So I kind of felt like he was needed. There is... A fun surprise, because I I honestly, this is, I, I'd paid a, a little bit of attention, you know, but I, I didn't realize that Rebecca Ferguson was in this movie, and I love Rebecca Ferguson from the Mission Impossible oh, yes. films. Oh, yeah. So, yes. Oh, my gosh. She was great in her role as RZA, and, as an intergalactic arms dealer and H's ex-girlfriend, and I completely understand why he would want to date her, because it's Rebecca Ferguson, and, and, and she was... She ate up all the scenery uh, in in every single scene that she was in, and she was one of the standouts of the movie to me as a just a, a really enjoyable, fun character. Um, she was great. She's so good as the bad person. Like Scott, you just saw the kid who would be king, and of course she's the evil person there too. And she's very good at being evil. I I was I, this was the weird thing for me because one. I don't know how through all the marketing, nobody mentioned that one of the standouts from the last two Mission Impossible movies was in this movie. It's like, how do you hide that? Why do you hide that? And then, right, that should have been in the trailer. You, you better believe it. That would have ex- that would eject at my my expectations because she's quickly becoming one of my screen wives. You know, my wife understands, and so it's like. <laughs> I love watching her on screen, and then you're right. Two days later, I'm watching a movie with my kids, and she's in it again. And I'm just like, she was great. I mean, she had the class. You know, the third arm growing out of her back was a neat touch. It allowed her to go completely Mission Impossible fight scenes with both H and M and add a completely different element to it. And in that, everything with her was some of my most enjoyable parts of the movie because she she just brought it. Yeah, she absolutely embodied that villain side and and I'm I love that they made her the kind of alien that they did. I think it would have been too too much to think of her and H being a couple, I think, if they had made her like an octopus alien or something. You know, they did just enough to make her different, but not too different that you couldn't see the two of them dating. Um, I loved the costuming they did for her. It was gorgeous. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she looked like she was meant to be, you know, the queen of something. So it was believable that she was an arms dealer. Um, And she just has that, like, persona that charisma about her when you see her in that room you know that she's in charge she reminded me of elizabeth taylor from cleopatra that's what that gave good one absolutely 
100%. Now that you say that, I'm like, why didn't I think of that? The hairdo and everything is, yeah, that's... She should be Cleopatra. They should do a reboot. (laughs) Well, I yeah, I just... um, I just love her and everything. So, I mean, she she brought a real sense of fun to the movie. Um, I do think it's interesting. You know, we, we mentioned the fact we got Lem Neeson and Emma Thompson in this movie. And goodness, if you don't, like, not use them at all, apparently. Like, I apparently. did not understand why they were in the movie so little because they're incredible actors, you know. And the fact that... As well, you know, you allude to the fact that there's a history between them as well at the very end, you know, when she talks about you have to give up things and like you get this feeling there's this huge history between her and high T and it's so disappointing that, you know, there's just not enough Emma Thompson and Lim Neeson in this film. Like this movie needs more of both of them in spades like it's crazy that they just let that go i don't get it i mean when you give emma thompson that great scene where she's interrogating uh molly at the new york office and she is just emma thompson it up with all of her just british wit and then she disappears until the end of the movie i'm sorry that just blew my mind don't be sorry (laughs) <laughs> i agree she she should have had more time I, I matt and i both have agreed how much we love the movie love actually mm-hmm. and so you know the two of them being in that they had screen time together and they were incredible i think that they should have had screen time together in this um and even just had more time in general for both of their characters uh, but yeah i i love her especially probably a, slightly more than liam neeson but now, I, w- I would actually agree with that because I've, I've grown up watching way too many Shakespeare movies with her, when, especially when she was married to Kenneth Branagh and he put her in all the movies. Yes. <laughs> to go. Yes. I have I, Yes. Yeah. So much like, respect. Like, much ado about nothing. Ah, anyway. Yes. Ah, good stuff. Um, so, it's something that I think we have, in many ways, kind of circled around in, in this conversation and something that I've been thinking a lot about after this movie and and that a lot of the sequels in this uh, just this summer specifically have just not been kind of living up to their full potential at the box office with the critics and even necessarily with you know the audience and are we finally starting to see franchise fatigue with the general audience i mean obviously we got to say up front, Endgame makes a billion dollars. But isn't that more of the exception to the rule than the rule? I actually think it's the reason, to be honest with you. Because if everyone goes and spends their money on Endgame, I mean, I'm not sure about your wallets, but movies are expensive these days. And, mm-hmm. you know, I-, I can go to movies as much because I've got like this. A- I got that AMC A-list thing where yeah, I'm paying too. a certain am- I- and I'm-, I'm paying a certain amount every month. And then, you know, AMC pays me to go see movies because I use it more than they think I- I'm going to. But uh, but I- but I'm an outlier. I'm not the typical movie goer. And I think you've got movies like Endgame that it's like they go see that because that's the movie everyone's going to be talking about. And then that was their movie for the month. 
you know, and in or even for a few and months. for a few months, because my parents, you know, my parents are people who the only reason my dad saw as many movies as he ever has is because he was going with me. If I wasn't there saying, Dad, let's go see a movie, he'd stay home. And I'm sure that's much more normal for an average moviegoer. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that my moviegoing has started to uptick because I'm currently, you know, an adult with no kids and have more time and and more available money to be able to do that. Um, But I think that, yeah, I'm not the average moviegoer. Um, But I do want to disagree a little with with what you're saying matt and say i don't think it's necessarily franchise fatigue and maybe i'm just living in my own dream world but it i really think that it's just been some of the writing of the last couple franchise movies we've gotten not being as good as what came before um and unfortunately it's been a few of them um and i don't know why but Obviously, there were things in the past that were franchises that were incredible all the way through. I mean, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, like there's rarely ones in all of those movies that I think we would say that we didn't think were as good as the others. Um, So I I don't know. I guess I'm hopeful that it's going to get better. I don't necessarily think it's franchise fatigue. Uh, yeah, I I'm not sure that I mean, and that's the reason I asked the question because I don't I don't know. Um, you know, I I I do know this. You know, there's a few things. Um, the the movie business has obviously changed immensely in the fact that every single weekend, you know, we have four or five movies coming out. One of them is supposed to be a blockbuster. You know, um, and. Every weekend, it does seem like some new continuation of some franchise. And so, and I do think that that change, and this is what I I was talking to John Mills a little bit about this and trying to kind of wrap my head around what I was thinking. And I feel like what's happened is that Hollywood has just given us too much of a good thing. And you, you can only, you can only eat so much steak at one time before you don't want to eat any more steak, you know? And so it doesn't really matter whether or not the movie is even good. You just can't really enjoy it, you know? And there's something to be said about, expectation and having to wait you know like i think of all of my favorite movies as a kid you know you're there were at least four years between sequels at least you know at least three years um you know the star wars movies were like that uh you know uh indiana jones movies were like that um you know every franchise that i loved you know there was an anticipation factor of really truly having to wait to have that meal again and then that movie would come out and I would watch it and I would you know just gobble it up and then you would have to wait again and and it wasn't a guarantee that something was going to come out you know and and I think it could possibly be the the Marvel thing where everybody just wants to keep pumping all of these things out and I'm part of it Christy I think you really said something so smart and it's just it's combined with what I'm saying it's like 
everything's trying to be awesome, but they're they're going so fast that you can't expect it to have the time it needs to be made awesome. Like you need to be able to spend the time mm-hmm. to really make sure that you're giving people the very best of what you've got instead of, well, let's just get it out now. And I also think it kind of goes back to something you guys said last week, which is I grew up with a lot of movies that were just okay. And okay was fine. You know, it it was the old, are you not entertained? Well, did it entertain me? Good. That's all I needed it to do. But now there has been, and I I have my own personal opinions about you know, social media and critics and how everything is like the best thing ever, the worst thing ever. And it gets so hyped up, you know, people, you know, people don't even give a movie a chance because I heard that and I'm like, well, did you see it? And they have it because they're allowing, they're like, I heard that people say what people and, and, and that, and I'm just someone who's like, I don't care what other people think. All that matters to me is whether I like it or I don't like it or I don't think it's okay. But going back to your point about how too much steak, I mean, as we're doing on my network, we're doing this other show that's on Patreon because of there's so many movies. I mean, there was literally a movie. There was a movie every week in May. I had to go to the movie theater every Thursday in the month of May because it was because it was, you know, um, there was Hellboy, then Endgame, then, you know, what, what I'm trying to think. What, I, I'm even forgetting what came out. It was like John Wick and Godzilla and then this movie. It's like I have seen so many movies in the last month and a half. I'm actually – oh, and Detective Pikachu. That was the other one I was forgetting in May. It was like I can't remember the movies I've seen because it was like C1 in a week, see another one in a week, see another one. And like there's not this sense of – like I, I don't even get like one or two months that go by and then the next movie comes out. It's literally just the next one and the next one and the next one. And they're all in subsequent weeks where I can't even keep up with what's all coming out. And so you don't have time to let it sink in and appreciate anything about it because it's just constant barrage of more movies. Exactly. Well, And I, I just thinking about this, how many times we hear about a movie, you know, if you do hear about how it's being made, you know, they're having to rush this or whatever. And it's like, you know, part uh, and and part of that is is just the culture of, of releasing movies based on a schedule you created like four years ago instead of like making the movie in its time and really allowing it the very best work to be done instead of just like, we've just got to get this out so that, you know, people can see it so we can get to the next movie, you know? Um, and, and I think when I say franchise fatigue, I think maybe that's part of it is that the franchises are not allowing themselves to truly maturate um, and, 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 and make sure that the, the, the movie they're bringing out not only deserves to be seen by people, but should be seen by people. Like it's, it, you know, it's that Jurassic Park thing. You were so busy uh, trying to figure out if you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. It's like, should we tell this story? Does this story really bring something to the franchise that we're, you know, we hold dear? And that's a really important question. And I think we've just gotten to this place where studios are very greedy and they want to try and make a buck off a known IP and we've lost the ability to have original films like the original Men in Black um, 
because people mm-hmm. aren't willing to take a chance on an unknown kid, you know, and um, we want to be able to have that. And again, I think it's the reason that Chris Nolan films do so well with people um, in is because he spends the time to think of new things, you know. Yes, he did Batman, but he does. But other even stuff. he now is a known quantity. So yep. he brings people to the table. Right. Yep. And the problem is, is that when we talk about, well, we want more original movies. We want more, you know, original stories. But then the problem is that then the movie going audience doesn't put their money where their mouth is and they don't do so well. And then we go, well, why aren't there more original movies? Well, because no one showed up for them. Right. Yep. 100%. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, Scott, you mentioned, uh, I, I mentioned um, the fact that you had just seen The Kid Who Would Be King. And that's, that's a fun, more original take on a very old tale given in a modern spin. And I was, that's a movie that I went and saw because it got very good reviews, but nobody went and saw it. And I really liked that movie. It was fun. It had heart. It was enjoyable. It felt like those old movie, those Amblin movies from like the eighties, you know, the Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. type of, of of thing that we all loved. And just nobody went and saw it. And it's disappointing because it was a great family movie. You know, like you could really legitimately take the family to see that movie instead of taking your family to see Endgame, which is not a family movie. You know, it's for teenagers and above. So it is talking through. It's just been interesting. And it's just something I wanted to ask you guys, because, you know, this really is a I I feel like this has been a a summer of sequels. And well, it's. And it's also been a, 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 a couple of months of movies that I've really enjoyed for the most part. But then I get smacked with the news of, oh, it underperformed or, you know, it's not doing well at the box office. And sometimes it's like, is it underperforming or not doing well? Because underperforming sometimes can be subjective. Like you thought, air quotes, it should have done better. And then there's, no, you're not going to make your budget back. You're actually a bomb. And it right. really hurts me because it's like, but I enjoyed that and I want to buy that on Blu-ray when it comes out. And I and I hate being told, yeah, that mo- that thing you liked. Oh, it, it no, everyone's thought it sucked. I'm just like, OK, I'm going to go yeah. in my corner now. All of that said in that conversation, I am kind of wondering where everybody's going to come down on MIBI. I'm going to give it um, five memories burned away out of ten. I lost half my memories. Five flashy things. <laughs> I know. I, I think I gave it like two and a half out of five stars. So if I'm going to round it up to ten, that'd be five out of ten. I think it just it 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 just it just it's right down the middle. It's so cookie cutter, but it's not bad. It just does a thing with a few chuckles along the way, and so that's kind of where I land on it. I get what you mean. And it, I think for the most part, we all kind of were on the same page with this one and feel the same as far as how great it was out of 10. Uh, I think I'll go a slightly higher because of the humor um, and give it six out of 10 Pawnees. Uh, I think just because it still it still made me laugh, you know, and it still had those classic things from the men in black franchise that I liked. Um, I did make sure that I looked up because I could recognize the score was the same, um, that they had the same composer do the score. 
um, Danny Elfman, um, which I loved. But it, it did feel like it was a little bit lacking as far as whose story it needed to be and um, getting a clear direction as far as between the London and New York office. Um, and then also I wanted to add, I needed to take off a, a little bit for the occasional references to current events um, where they said that men in black, believe me, I've tried. That kind of annoyed me because they're speaking about mankind. They're, you know, been women agents and stuff. It's not a thing that needs to change. Well, the queen has spoken. So Matt, it, whatever you say, it's very true. It, I'm the queen has <laughs> spoken. So, um, huh, um, let's see, <laughs> you know, I, I went into this movie with such low expectations that I was surprised that it wasn't bad um, and that I had a good time in it. Um, you know, obviously, you know, all the things that we talked about, but it, this truly is a movie that I had a, a great time in, in the sense that I, I had a very enjoyable experience at the year watching this movie. I had um, fun and that's nice. Obviously, I I feel like the movie could have had a lot more depth and it could have been an even better movie. And in many of the same ways that I felt like, you know, as we talked about last week, Dark Phoenix, or even the week before that with, uh, you know, uh, Godzilla King and Monsters. Like, I think all of these movies could have been something extra special. You know, uh, this one's just like, it's like semi-special. It's like semi-sweet chocolate. Um, it's not quite as sweet as you want it to be, unfortunately, when you're craving chocolate. But it was it was still enjoyable, and I had a good time watching it. And I, I'm with you, Chrissy. I think I would give this because I think I gave this three and a half out of five. So this is definitely, I think, a six out of ten. And yeah, I mean, I would say too. You know, if, if Toy Story four wasn't coming out this this weekend as we're recording this um and it's i think 100 percent of rotten tomatoes and everybody's going to be go see that you know i don't think this is one that people shouldn't go see like i would i would say yeah thumbs up go see it it's fun you know um and just i mean if, if it's if it's only for rebecca ferguson alone um it's worth seeing or chris Hemsworth. so um but I, it is so much fun that we get a chance to talk about this one. Um, thank you so much for listening, everyone. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts again. So just make sure you're subscribed. Um, and, uh, you know, you'll get the show as soon as it drops. Really appreciate our associate producers here through Patreon. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Wine Millette, and Dan, Daniel Noah. Um, they have made sure that uh, every podcast here on the Trek FM Network keeps coming to you each and every week, especially the 602 Club. So we appreciate their support and thank them for that. Now, they know something very important. This network is huge and there is no way that we can do it without you. So your support matters every single week. Um, now, you can go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of the team. Uh, again, every little bit helps, but we also have some fun contribution levels you can give at, and you get extra perks. So check that out. Again, it's patreon.com slash trekfm. Scott, it was fantastic to have you back here uh, talking Men in Black International, but you have a lot going on 
elsewhere. And so please let everybody know where they can find you. Well, you can find me on Twitter at ScottDC27. Of course, uh, wherever you find your podcast, you can find our show, The Suicide Squadcast, talking about DC movies, TV, and comics occasionally. And we do have the entire network. Uh, of uh, And you can find all of that over at SuicideSquadcast.com. Awesome. Yeah, we were so glad to have you back on, Scott, and always like talking to you. Um, I, I also wanted to throw in, you guys can find me, of course, on Twitter and Instagram at Bespin Bell. And then I do a couple of other podcasts in addition to the 602 Club. Uh, every other week, I do a show with my friend Teresa called Sabers and Spells. And we just got finished reviewing Aladdin. And uh, next, we're going to be talking about Umbrella Academy some more. So stay tuned for that. I also do a show um, once a month called Fashion in Five, a segment on my friend's show, The Star Wars Report, uh, talking about men's women's Star Wars fashion. And then finally, once a month, I do a show on Fanthatrack's network called Planet Leia, where we have women from all over the world talking about Star Wars from our point of view. And last but not least, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd under the name MattRushing02. Uh, I'm here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones, talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, then you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One is called Owl Post with Drea Kaufman, and that is where we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. Uh, I'm doing Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills, talking about Star Wars each and every week. It's a blast. If you like Star Wars, it's really the show for you. We have so much fun just talking through um, a new Star Wars topic each and every week. It's great. Um, and then you can also find me... Uh, doing one last show and that was with my friend Courtney and that is where we talk about films the ones of faith and it is called cinema stories but thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear Okay, Scott, go. The good guys dressed in black. Remember that. Just in case we have a face-to-face and make contact. It might be. Means what you think you saw, you did not see. <laughs> so don't jeer us, just cheer us. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Hey.